Hello, I'm Charlie Code, and welcome to the Culture Decoded podcast, a collaboration between Code Associates and Culture 15 intended to highlight the best in thought leadership and effective implementation on the topic of organisational culture. Culture Decoded is a series of interviews where I will ask prominent leaders, cultural practitioners and thinkers from a range of fields to reflect on their personal journeys and that of their organisations, teasing out what matters most. At both Culture 15 and Code Associates, we believe that culture is the key to any organisation achieving its goals and creating sustainable success. And we're committed to sharing ideas, inspiration and hard-won lessons for others to put to use. Whether you're starting a business, leading a team or an organisation, or you're just interested in how organisations succeed or fail, there'll be something here for you. I hope you enjoy listening. So welcome to episode one of the Culture Decoded podcast. Um, very exciting to get started with this and also particularly excited to welcome Sam Goldsworthy as our first guest. Um, I'll ask Sam to introduce himself in a minute, um, but I have long admired Sam for what he did in terms of setting up Sipsmith Gin in, uh, in a period immediately post-financial crash um, and uh, setting up the first distillery in London for 150 years, I think it was. So I always admire people who do something that most other people think is completely mad. So Sam, welcome. Thank you, Charlie. Very nice to have you here. Real honour to be here. Episode one, let alone on a podcast generally with you. So thank you for including me. Oh, absolute pleasure. Um, So best place for us to start is um, say a little bit about yourself, uh, and particularly a little bit about the Sipsmith business, um, just to set the scene, and then we'll go into a little bit about the story. Yeah, so Sam grew up in Cornwall, uh, on a farm and uh, made my way into the drinks industry, sort of post-university, which I didn't last, actually. I went to Bristol briefly uh, and I realised, recognised it wasn't for me, so I got out and I went straight into the drinks industry uh, and worked for a, a brewery in London called Fuller's, worked for them in their sort of free trade sales uh, team, and then they moved me over to the US. Uh, and I lived in America as a sort of 23, 24-year-old, um, representing, managing the sales of Fuller's throughout North America. I mean, exactly. absolute dream job. Wow. You know, it was when the dollar was two to one and, you know, everything about it was absolutely incredible. And everything about Britain and Englishness and London was just a dream to the Americans. Mm. Uh, they absolutely loved it. So actually selling the beer was sort of Coles to Newcastle. So, but it, but it was an incredible experience. And it was there traveling around the US. And I went to every single state in America, bar two. Uh, North and South Dakota. But anyway, I, I, I really got under the skin of the um, the Americans and how they, and, and their relationship, and their, their shifting relationship with brands. And in my case, it was sort of uh, watching um, the beer world. Mm. But but once you knock on the door of the beer world, you go into spirits and there was wine and there was soft drinks. And actually, I, th- I think one of the things that I observed most spectacularly in America was coffee. So I remember going to Seattle and mm. uh, and went to go to Pike Street Fish Market, sort of five in the morning, came out. There's a long line of people standing outside this little cafe. It was writing on the wall. Everyone had aprons. Everyone had these crazy moustaches and the smell. Uh, there were people on these sort of laptops, and which was sort of relatively sort of new then. And uh, and I could just remember going, what, what, what's everybody doing here? And there was a line out the door. And they said, oh, it's a, it's a coffee shop. It's a coffee shop. People lining up. You know, in America, it was one buck of coffee. It was this sort of inflationary-proof pricing that had been a buck of, yeah. you know, coffee forever. And Starbucks came in, and this was their first cafe, and they charged four bucks of coffee. So they created an experience 
around coffee, the smell, the scent, the fact that there was a roastery going on in the back or underneath. There were noises, there were sounds, there was percolators, there was milk frothing, there were hipsters. You know, it was, there was a real thing. And actually Starbucks understood that there was a space to occupy and own between home and office. Mm. And they, they found that. And it was the first sense that the kind of experiential economy and how brands needed to do more to make themselves distinctive and stand out rather than just being sort of a high street this or, or an at home that. They found this central space. And so I always remember being very affected by what Starbucks did. And I sort of followed this sort of growth pattern. And this was in 2001. Uh, and just saw these, um, these cafes popping up. They loved it. So I was an early adopter of the, uh, the coffee movement. But going back to drinks, you know, you had microbreweries brew pubs where you sort of go in and drink your beer at the point where it's produced. And, you know, again, it was, you know, two bucks a pint of Budweiser, or you could spend six bucks a pint um, for an unbelievable craft beer that had real flavor, real punch, real pack. And you understood who was making it, where it was made, how it was made, uh, with what it was made. And, and all these kind of critical questions, which in the sum of their parts amounted to not just experience, but to craft. And it was inherently an antithesis of the global brands like Budweiser. It was local. Right? Absolutely. I mean, you know, Bud Miller Coors, yeah. those three breweries, staples of American culture, represented 97% of the total beer market in, in, in the US. So you had 3% left, you know, and of that 3%, sort of 90% of that 3% was occupied by sort of rather large regional brewers, but actually you had 1% of market left for craft, imported craft as well, which I was fighting, yeah. vying for. Um, and so Fuller's had a, we had a good early start. It was great, but I don't mind telling you, I took my eye off the ball when I suddenly really got excited about this idea of craft distilleries and the whiskey movement, the gin movement, which was, you know, no, which was nowhere there. Right? I was they, they say, weren't that was before gin. it became a thing. They didn't it? drink gin. I mean, they don't. It was a real risk, whiskey hub. And I can remember Fairfax, my business partner, and a Cornishman I grew up with, a great, great, great friend. And he was doing an MBA at Wharton Business School and uh, would stay with me. I moved to New York and he came to me and I, he said, what are you thinking? What do you think? I said, well, I've got to tell you about what I've seen. I've seen coffee go from a buck to four bucks uh, as a result of this movement. I have seen beer go from, you know, two bucks to six bucks. I've seen spirits go, you know, whiskey, you know, and this is in the four or five years that I've been here. You know, and that mindset exists in London, exists in the UK, exists in Europe. This idea that people want to understand more about what it is they're consuming. They want to, they, they, they want to unpack it. They want these questions answered. They want a relationship with the brand rather than just a transaction or a fix or something. You know, they actually want a sense of belonging, a sense of ownership. And that was powerful. And people were prepared to pay more for that, just to introduce the kind of commercial element of it. But, the, you know, that, that sense of premium comes very naturally when you've got an authentic craft, when you've got a transparent business, when you've got real humans that aren't automated processes, you know, you've actually got, and, and you've got inconsistencies perhaps in, in, in the, you know, humans, society is really tolerant of inconsistencies and, and bumps and, and things like that. And that's actually, I'll come on to this, where the name came from a little bit. But anyway, so Fairfax said, yeah, this is great. What are we going to do with this? I said, well, you go to London, the home of gin, where we're both destined to go back to, doing you at Diageo, me going Fuller's or whatever. But I've got this idea, and it is that we should 
reintroduce and rejuvenate the gin market in the UK. We start in London and we'll do it with a craft distillery and we'll open it up because there's this veil of mystery that exists around the city. People didn't, well, what, what, how do you brew beer? And they'll get my hops, malt, wheat, you know, uh, water. Yes. And then I don't know what happens after that. I said, what about distilling? They go, no idea. Yeah. And so we thought, and this is moving the story on a bit, you know, he's like, I love it. I'm in, this is great. Let me go to Diageo. Let me get a bit of credibility as we raise money. But uh, uh, um, the idea, the concept is absolutely there. This, this idea that you should, um, uh, uh, um, lift this veil of mystery. Let, let, let's be educators. Let, let, let's be experiential in how we bring a brand to life because the received wisdom was that in order to launch a spirits brand, and at the time you had sort of Bombay and Perno and you had all these kind of huge brands. Gordon's. Gordon's, yeah. exactly. Yeah. You know, they established themselves um, with a huge above-the-line advertising. I mean, massive, hundreds massive, of hundreds yeah. of millions globally. I mean, regionally, let alone globally. I mean, you know, you cannot compete with that. And so what exists at the other end of the spectrum? Well, experience. And what does experience do? Experience provides distinctiveness. Experience provides things that you can't put your finger on. And that is where culture, ultimately, we think, and I think perhaps why I'm here on the sofa, is, you know, when you create an experience, when you create a memory, it becomes very sticky. Sometimes you can't define it. Sometimes you can't explain how something makes you feel. It just makes you feel it. And therefore, you like your association with it, right? And then, and then a relationship is formed and forged. And that was the, that was the insight. That was what we were going for. It's like, okay, well, we haven't got hundreds of millions, but certainly I'm going to raise it. So let's create a distillery where people could come and access, learn a little bit about the history, learn about this. Yeah, great idea. So off we went. So it was open from the start? No. So the story is that, you know, there we are with this grand, yeah, this sort of naive optimism, right. which we both went into. I was like, come on, we've got to do this. Right, great, let's do it. Well, let's do it. Okay, let's do it, come on. So we started writing this business plan and we spent every night and every weekend, and he was married at the time and I wasn't, but, you know, it consumed a huge amount of time to, to write, draft, edit this business plan. And we thought, yeah, this is it, this is good. This is great. It was a year later. This is great, this is good, let's go for it. So we handed our notice on the very same day commitment absolutely you know it's literally and i think this is you know there is this sort of leap of faith that you have to take you can write all the business plans you can understand all consumer psycho psych, you know psychology you can understand trade you know everything but at some point you've just got to blindfold on you just got to, you got to walk off the cliff and you've got to hope that something or someone is going to be there to catch you uh, um, and that's what we did i remember that early september we handed in our notice uh, and away we went. He goes, well, the next thing we're going to do is we've got to go to the government. And we've got to say, look, we've got this great idea. We're going to reintroduce gin back to the city where London Dry Gin earned its name. And we were very kind of, you know, full of, full of vigour about this. You when know, this you resigned, is... you, you had nothing. Yeah, we made the leap. We handed in our notice on the very same day. I can remember it acutely. And uh, we, we had nothing. You know, we didn't have a site. We didn't have a distillery. We didn't have a licence. We didn't have anything. We thought, you know, actually, surely it's, we're just going to go to the government and ask for one. Right? You know, and actually why, yeah. And why has nobody already done this? The big question. Why has nobody already done this? And I think if there's ever a really good idea out there, somebody has unquestionably had it before you. But for whatever reason, they haven't gone forward with it. And in our case, many people had gone to the government and said, we would like a license to set up a gin distillery. Mm. And they said, you can't, because there is a law that was instrumented in 1821 that stopped small distilleries from existing that were under 18 hectolitres. I mean, that's sizable. 
It's a really big pot still. And that was very prohibitive, obviously. And, and, and it, was, it was a real collusion with the big guys. Well, I was going to say that's presumably in the interest of the incumbents. Definitely. They were there. They were established. And actually, there was probably some poor quality. There was probably, mm. you know, and, and I think the, the theory was that if you had a really small pot still, you could hide it from a visiting government officer, you know, revenue customer, you know. So, so there were perhaps reasons, but in today's day, they were frankly anachronistic, mm. draconian uh, and pointless. And so when, when the government officers said, <laughs> you know, no, you can't have a license for what you want to do, we were left absolutely scrambling. I and mean, we thought, my God, this is, this is the dumbest thing we've ever done. You know, we've quit our jobs, we've thrown everything in. Perhaps the smart thing would have been to have found out that we couldn't get a license before we quit our bloody job. That was you know? sort of my, behind my question yeah. of, did you have everything? Well, it was really like dumb. But, I, and it, but somehow that naive optimism, you know, spurs you on. It just absolutely fired us to go forward. And it, and, it, and, it, and it did. But we also had told enough people that we didn't actually want to look down, even more silly by not having done it. There's no plan B. It's a very it good absolute, incentive for an, an entrepreneur. Completely. To, yeah. And it wasn't. I mean, it really wasn't. Because also, we genuinely thought this was a bloody good idea. And so we, we set about convincing the government that this was, it was time to change the law. You know, the law was 189 years since the law was instrumented. It's time to change that. And we put the business case to them about the small beer. Uh, there was a small beer act change in the 90s that completely transformed the UK beer landscape to make it more competitive. It's where craft beer came from and employment and choice. It was fantastic. And by that stage, craft beer really had did have momentum. Absolutely. It? Yeah. It, was, it was beyond a seedling at that mm. point. I mean, it really was sort of knee deep, knee, knee high in the field. It was great. But, it, you know, it was, it, it's gone a lot further since then. And uh, so we... We, we got our local MP, we got uh, our friends and friends who were lobbyists in the government. They put us in front of the All-Party Spirits Committee uh, to convince them that a, an amendment in the law was necessary. So this whole process, Charlie, took about a year and uh, about 14, 15 months uh, of nothing, no income, absolutely nothing, absolutely zero credibility all the way. I mean, we were fighting, absolutely fighting to get this. Over the, over the line. And it was uh, 18 months that we had not baked into the Gantt chart. Of, uh, uh, and, uh, and no investor would give us any money because we didn't have a license and all this. And so there was nothing. And, um, but anyway, what was funny was that we, we, we were giving up. We were all but done. Uh, and we were going, I just, we can't do this. We, you know, we can't spend our lives trying to convince the government to change the license. It isn't going to happen. Anyway, Fairfax, last ditch effort, rung up. Uh, there was a white paper issued around the future of spirits. And he goes, well, this is a really interesting line here, you know, with special permission. Uh, and so he rung up the author of this white paper, long story short, and he said, yeah, if you, if you want, you, you know, there's been a lot of pressure from someone somewhere to change the law, and this is what we're going to put in. If you, if you want a license, you can have special permission, special dispensation, or whatever the language was. And we thought, this is it. We've done it. So he goes, I would not be able to stop you, said he if you applied for a license in London to set up a gin distillery. Boof. Which is about as explicit as government. I mean, gets, I can believe right? it. <laughs> I can believe it. And so there we were. We couldn't believe it. So we applied. We got this ridiculous piece of paper that was, you know, folded up, sort of, you know, telephone memo pad saying you've got a license and we raised money against that. And then all the green lights started changing. Mm. You know, having, having been confronted with hurdle and red light after red light, every single light change to green and the first one being the license which then allowed us to get money which then allowed us to get a site which then allowed us to get a pot store which then allowed us to get our 
master distiller, Jared Brown, who's our third partner, this critical wheel uh, and third leg of the stool. And, um, and, and suddenly we had, we, had, we had the sort of formula that was required. We didn't have a recipe, we didn't have anything, but that was Jared's responsibility. And, um, and, and, and away we go. So that was the construct of Sipsworth. And that was in end of 08. And so we, Jared started working on a gin, uh, you know, gin brand. And I think this is a really interesting point to introduce as well, um, because, and I think this is perhaps a bit of the lightning strike of our culture was Jared saying, by the way, before I commit to joining you, you know, this, you know, what is the kind of gin that you want to make? What is the gin that you do you want? What are you thinking of? And we said, Jared, <laughs> at this point, we just want to make a gin. I, you know, we are not, you know, pre-sold or predisposed at all. And he goes, good, because I wouldn't join you unless you wanted to make anything other than a very classic gin, a gin that's going to stand the test of time. Because you've inherited 200 years of gin history. And I'm not going to let you make a very sort of modern, weird, wacky, multi-formulate thing. We're going to make gin the way gin used to be made and the way I think gin should be made. And I'm a historian and I know what that is. And actually that formed the basis, this sort of foundation of culture that we should be very classic. We shouldn't be super crazy and disruptive. We're disruptive enough. But in terms of flavor, what people really wanted was this a flavor that was going to last, a story about... Actually, we know how gin should be made. And we know where compromises are being made currently. And we are, we're going to make sure that doesn't exist. So, so a sense of doing it properly. Absolutely. No compromise. Mm. That was the whole thing. No compromise. And it remains one of our values today. Absolute zero compromise. And uh, from ingredients to stylistically to equipment to the way we recruit, absolutely no compromise. Uh, and that's now changed a little bit to another value, which is sort of no half measures. So whatever we do, we go in 100%. You know, it's a double measure. The principle's or, 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 the same. Point. Exactly. Can I ask, so we're going to dig more into the cultural piece, but I, I'm interested in the timing. So you mm-hmm. said that was late 2008. Yeah. Now, I remember, and I'm sure many people listening to this podcast will remember, that was chaos mm. because it was just on the back of Lehman Brothers collapsing. Mm. <laughs> there was real fear that the entire financial system would yeah. essentially break down. Um, none of the banks were lending. Mm. Uh, it, it was the closest I've seen in my entire life to institutional panic. Yeah. How, did that affect your, that was a very formative moment for you as a business. So uh, was that a background noise or was that influence? Background noise. Oh, interesting. Absolutely background noise because we, we were already a year late, right? So we, you know, if, if we'd had our way, the Gantt chart would have brought us way further forward right. and we would have, we would have been up and running and perhaps the timing would have been even worse. Oh, so yes. the fact that we, launched at rock bottom or just on the other side of rock bottom mm. and actually what it, it, we ended up getting a lot of media as a result because there was nothing but bad news yes yeah and we were the shard of light we were this sort of beacon of small seedling of optimism around the fact that there could be an economy re-emerging again if entrepreneurs were taking this kind of step and businesses were trying to disrupt doing things in a different way and actually also people were looking again for that word experience. People were out there looking for something more than just a gin and tonic in a pub or, you know, a martini in a bar. They wanted passion. They wanted enthusiasm. They wanted, they wanted to hear that people had sacrificed something. And that's what we heard loudly was that, look what you've done. You know, you sold your flats, you gave them up everything, you've sold whatever you had and put it all into this. And people were like, well, I'm in on that. You know, I'm, I'm all in. If, if you've done that, then I'm, 
that is my 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 gift to you. My transaction with you is that I'm I'm, I'm buying this. But I've got a it's relationship. A story, isn't it's a story. You're great, buying into the story. Absolutely. And it's that story. If it's really compelling, if it's really authentic, and it's told right, mm. then you've got them. If you know who it is you're trying to get, and um, and and but it was incidental. It was naive. It was it was just. It was not preconceived how we were going to get people. We just knew we needed a distillery in the first 200 years. We needed to make it in a non-compromising way. And we wanted to let people in so that they could learn and tell the story. And what was the size of the initial team? So obviously you, Fairfax and Jared. Yeah. Well, presumably you needed a few more people around we you. We certainly did. And, uh, and actually it was fascinating because um, the, the next person we got was another distiller. So Jared instantly wanted a second distiller so he could become a bit of an ambassador and, 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 and run the innovation pipeline and all that sort of stuff. So we got this brilliant, brilliant Scottish distiller. And then I was going out selling the gin to the market. And, um, and actually another hurdle was that because there was no gin category, not a single wholesaler in London would take it. So I convinced our investors that, you know, don't worry, I'm a salesman, but, you know, everyone's going to take the gin, we'll put it onto lorries, it'll be distributed around the country, but absolutely fine. And I'm going to go and do the tour. Actually, not a single wholesaler for six months took it. And the only way of getting the finished case from the distillery to the bars, which we were not unsuccessful at winning, mm. Uh, was on my scooter. So I had a moped in order to get around and I put two cases between my legs, two on the pillion passenger and one on the box, you know, the sort of delivery box. And I was driving to Duke's Hotel, to the, you know, uh, Harvey Nichols, you know, with a, with a high-vis jacket and a helmet uh, and, and a delivery note. And all because wholesalers wouldn't take us. But that is still the story that people tell. You know, these mistakes that we made, the, the, the naivety with which we just assume things are going to happen and they don't. Actually, again, it comes back to how patient and tolerant and understanding people are. It, it, you know, as you make a mistake, you go, sorry, I thought everyone was going to, we were going to have a wholesale. No, you can't. So I'm going to deliver it to you in person. I couldn't fit it on my scooter. Uh, it's going to be a day later. They loved it. Well, I had to do three distillery, three runs. Of things. So, so the next person we got was a salesperson. We got a brilliant guy from... Uh, and a, a majestic, uh, and um, and then we got a, a he was looking after the on trade with me, and then we got this phenomenal girl called Georgie who was ran the off trade, so all the grocery stuff, and you know the three of us were were running UK sales for the best part of sort of three years together, uh, and and then we had a marketing team which was a team of one and two, and all the marketing that we did, almost one hundred percent of the marketing had to break even there and then. So this whole idea, Charlie, you know, you go and you start a business and you raise a million pounds, three, four million pounds, I'm seeing some business plans for. And I go, what are you going to do with the marketing? And I go, where's the value? You know, how are you as a leader, as, as a marketeer, you know, the value, your understanding of the value of that pound versus if you've got a million and a half, you know, swilling around in the current account, you know, we understood the value of money. We, only, we raised in total 400,000 pounds. For that was it. The, you know, on the cap table was four hundred and fifty thousand pounds in total that we raised for everything. And but we understood that marketing had to pay back there and then at every event that we did, at every trade show. You know, all the stuff that was experiential was paid. You had to pay for the experience. Yeah. And actually, we, we you know we opened up a distillery for free, and not many people came. But when you charged, right? We charged ten fifty pounds. It lines up the door. <laughs> Because there was an implicit understanding, there's this sort of contract with you. Well, I'm going to get value for money, you know. Whereas they got exactly the same tour when it was free, but when they came uh, and they paid, they turned up 
as well. But there's, it's some, okay. there's some old wisdom there. There really is. Yeah. Which was being is being relearned now. Interest rates are now sustainably high, right? Because there's been a lot of money going around and a lot of businesses have been founded based on investment, their ability to raise money, mm. not their ability mm. to generate revenues. And there's yeah. a big shakeout happening yeah. at yeah. the moment in startups for exactly that that reason is they don't understand that revenue generation has to be primary. Mm. Um, but at that stage, you were presumably all in a single room. Oh, yeah. Right? We, yeah we were. So culture was, at that stage, organic and automatic, right? Yeah. It, was, it was all through osmosis. Communication yes. was through osmosis. We never had meetings, you know? We were just sort of sat across a couple of makeshift IKEA desks and uh, um, someone's old kitchen. And, you know, it was, you know, we had a sort of an old HP printer and we had, you know, it was, it was everything was ricky and inconsistent and, and, you know, but it didn't matter. And actually, I love the fact that it was, you know, the holes in the cushions, the wonky yeah. chairs, you know, the, you know, nothing was imperfect. And yeah, of course, had we raised 1.5, we'd have probably spent a lot more on furniture and really fancy cushions and, you know, uh, you know, towels and loo. I mean, it was gritty. It was gritty what we were doing. And, and it was important. And Fairfax did not allow us, uh, uh, as the guardian of finance and operations, to spend anything that was not warranted in any way, shape or form unless it was customer or consumer facing. And driving revenue. Absolutely. Ultimately. And ultimately driving revenue because everything had to pay back events, as I said, you know, and, and, and the demands that we placed on our customers to pay us back, you know, so the terms we gave them were really tough. And of course we asked for everyone else for much better terms behind us. So they Cash flow management. Absolutely what it was, but you know, but it was 101 stuff, you know, and actually I think Fafis and I reflected on this last year, you know, the, the way that we brought it to life was absolutely shoestring. It was shoestring stuff, not least because we didn't have much money, but that little amount of money changed the behaviours of us as leaders. It showed how much harder we kind of had to work, actually, you know, through the weekend, we're doing events, doing mm. things, you know, and our team did the same. I mean, they just, they just sort of copied, quite rightly, what, what they were doing, I and mean, they hadn't have skin in the game. Um, they were just part of something. They, they felt... Part of movement, and in a way, like the more press that we got, the more column inches that we had, the more television stuff that we were in, or the new accounts that we got, whether it was Parliament or whether it was, you know, the Royal Opera House or some of these incredibly sort of London or British iconic brands that were really wanted to adopt us. And this is still in 2009, so we're not even a year old. But these three salespeople and our distillers and the marketeers would bend over backwards. I mean, they were absolutely 120% invested, even though they weren't. Yeah. And I mean, in the end, those that stayed the course did, in fact, get skin in the game, respectfully. Uh, but that wasn't why they were doing it. No, but it wasn't why they were doing yes. it. You know, it wasn't why they were doing it. And actually, as leaders, we'd sort of paid no attention, in a way, to to that. But our behaviours, the way that we worked, the you know, the 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 tone that we set, the pace that we set, the expectations, and the management of money and uh, marketing, etc. Yeah, I've said enough, but you get the point. So I do, uh, and it's it's very visceral at that stage, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And and as you say, automatic, and presumably people who don't fit don't, don't make it through the interview phase. Talk a little bit about the evolution, because the, there's obviously it will have had maybe not so noticeable, but stages, and you went through uh, this extraordinary growth story, and then you really created a category in of itself, um, and then of course there was a an acquisition mm -hmm. some. 10 years later. I'd love to hear that, the reflection of how the organization evolved over that Definitely. time. Well, I think the, you know, I put it into sort of um, three acts. Mm. And there's a sort of a prequel bit, a bit of the story about getting the license. 
And then Act One is from March 2009 that runs up to um, probably 2013, 2014, when the team went, we were all grafting and it was all about grit and determination. And we suddenly woke up in 2013 and we were in 20 countries globally, not in any meaningful way. I mean, it sounds wow, but actually, yeah. you know, five or six pallets here, there, and everywhere. I mean, you know, the great thing about gin doesn't go off. You can put it on a back bar and it's there, and everyone just goes, wow, you're in Tokyo. You know? <laughs> and you're like, actually, you know, it's not that much, but um, still, we were very proud of it. So, you know, but it is, you've got to be careful about ego, right? You know, it's, ah, oh, you're, you're everywhere. Yeah, we are everywhere. You're not. You're actually, you know, it's mild revenue management. It's mm. just good visibility. Um, so Act One was right up until we woke up. We, we were in 20 countries. We were in all the wholesales we need to be. We're in, we're in, a, we're in the right retailers here. We had, and then suddenly we looked in where we stopped uh, and we had 25 people in the business and we had no HR, you know, and, and no one knew each other. Right. You know, it, 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 no one really knew each other. There was just a, a spate. We had some eight or nine new people. And there was this girl who ran our off-trade. I mentioned George, yes, uh, who said, look, I, I don't want to work in off-trade anymore. I'm out. I think you guys need an HR person. Well, George, if we're going to get an HR person, we're going to get an HR person. You know, We're, we're not going to get an ex-commercial off-trade. She goes, you can't afford them, and nor can you afford not to have someone like me that understands this culture through and through. Presumably also that sort of traditional HR probably wouldn't have fitted very well. I think that's right. And, and, and actually my experience with HR at Fuller's was, was very sort of robotic. It was very formulaic, very structured, very processed. And uh, there was not a lot of sort of empathy. There was not, not a lot of emotion. Not much character. Uh, and you were all character. Correct. correct. And so that's, that, was act, that was act one. Uh, and so Georgie moving into running our head of culture, she gave her own title. She, she, she was super autonomous. And she, you know, and she, I said, how are you going to do this? She goes, she used one word. She goes, instinct. I, you know, we're all about gut feel. If we ever wrote a book, I think it would, all be, it would be called Gut Feel. Uh, and Georgie, James, Fairfax, Jared and I all talked about the sort of instinct of the formula of head, heart and gut all coming together to inform whatever it, it, it is. And if there's enough of you contributing towards that formula, then you're probably going to make the right call because instinctively you know how each other works and you know how the, you know how the brand as an organism functions as well. And Georgie probably knew it better than Fairfax, than Jared, and, and definitely myself. And, and as we had these new people, of course, we couldn't afford a £50,000 national account manager. We couldn't afford a, you know, a, a hundred grand international salesperson. We were taking people out of uni. You know, we had a student ambassador program and we had, we went to every single key city. So we had 30 different brand ambassadors that we paid a really small amount. We gave them free beer, free, free gin and merchandise. I mean, everybody. As a student, that's very valuable. <laughs> and their job was to host drinks parties and experiences, you know, and it was great. And and probably eight or nine people came through the company, probably more, uh, having been a brand student brand ambassador. I came through a sort of graduate program, which was sort of non-existent, came through, and then became a salesperson, or became marketing. And uh, and it was brilliant. But of course, we never we couldn't afford to necessarily pay them very much. Uh, uh, and suddenly then we woke up. So this is act two. So, so we suddenly had, we woke up, we had 25 people in the company. It was like, shit, oh my God, where, where, what's happened here? And, and there, was, there was some cultural tensions at that point. 
too. There was this sort of actually, well, they didn't know each other and they're clashing and you had finance, you had sales, you had marketing, you had all, all the kind of classic. Right? You then have departments. You don't have a small Absolutely. team, you have departments. Absolutely. And so Georgie came in and became this glue, this attempt to sort of rebond, refuse us all together. And, and she stopped us and said, you know, look at, look, at, look at what we've created. People are coming here because of this culture. People come here because we created something. It's not just a great brand. It's not just because we've changed the law. It's not just because there's an experience. And, you know, just, it's not that. That was the outward. That was the external culture. That was the observation, the perception, which was great. And I think it was quite real. But what, what existed inside was chaos, was hard work, huge amounts of laughter, but some tension. And George's job was to iron out the tension, to get out the creases, because they were emerging more than they should have done and we would have liked them to have done. And she was this sort of mother hen. You know, she was this uh, uh, extraordinary, empathetic person that absolutely understood how to run us, how to work up and, and, and show leadership uh, upwards, which I think is something that's really often not talked about, this idea of, you know, people talk about managing up, it's actually leading up, I think. Mm. If, you, if you're a really good leader, you will be allowed to be led from below. Yes. Uh, and, the military and, talk uh, about uh, that uh, a lot. Do they? They talk about followership. Being a good follower. Yeah. It actually is a reflection of leadership. Absolutely. Very interesting. Well, I, I can see that. And, and Georgie, Georgie had this power on us. She had this grip. Uh, and uh, and, and got, she was this glue. And she said, all these interview, all these people that are coming through to interview, Sam, they're all talking about this culture. Because the few people that left us were sort of espousing what it was to work at Sipsmith, which was chaos. Absolute chaos. But successful chaos. Yes. And it was, there was no structure, there were no rules. And so in we went to Act Two, which was a slightly better organised form of chaos. But chaos nevertheless. But led by Georgie led by this Ministry of Culture. She, she set up a Ministry of Fun so that we were all working so hard at crazy hours. And she created this sort of club of fun that then informed what we did, how Christmas parties existed, how off-sites worked, the language. And we suddenly recognised that we had a language that was being used all around birds, swans, you know, yeah. bevies, all the sort of... Uh, anachronism, uh, uh, the, the anachronisms that exist around around that smithery, Smith sips, and you know there was this language which Georgie reminded us of that was so important to culture. And but you were she was codifying it absolutely. That stage, that's exactly the word, and that's the point, exactly the word. It? She was she she codified it for us, and uh, and and made sure that when we were speaking to our team or were to press or investors, we were using the same language inside as we did out, and of course innocent smoothies did it brilliantly mm. they understood and they were authentic in their culture all the way through in their tone of voice and their language and innocent were based right next door to sipsmith right next to us in 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 hamsmith so we were you know we were we understood a lot about how they were they, they were probably the first of those kind of fmcg brands to sort of use and use that language on their pack as well um so act two off it goes we suddenly got a lot more professionalism uh, uh, uh we're a little bit better organized um but our growth rate is still Unbelievable. I mean, it's almost unmanageable. Um, we moved sites. We went from Hammersmith to uh, Chiswick, not far away, but it was, you know, seismic in size. And we were really then wearing a, what we called a sort of suit size that was way too big for us. And it's an interesting analogy. When you wear a suit size too big, you can't wait to grow into it. And as a result of can't wait to grow into it because you want to look like you're big, you end up behaving 
a little bit bigger. You end up, your, your, some of your behaviors start changing. And I, and I would say that was some of the, where some of the mistakes started coming in, where we, we were really trying to grow up in that, in that playground, in that, in the schoolyard or, or brands where trying to compete with Plymouth and Hendrix was now this sort of 14 year overnight success story in Bombay. And we were like, that's who we want to be. Come on, that's who we're sourcing our growth from. Let's behave like them. So you started externally referencing. I think we did. That's interesting. I think it was interesting. We, we, I think we can, we, we can reflect on that. Actually, what we wanted to do was source growth. We wanted to steal every single pound that was being spent on all these brands over to Sipsmith. But actually in doing so, we ended up trying to emulate some of the brand behaviours. Uh, and Georgie was the only one. Our internal culture was what really stopped us going any further. And our team holding us a little bit more to account. Well, hang on, why are we behaving like that? Why, is, why have we got an advert? We've never advert, advertised. Why, why would we do that? Why are we peering on SEO? You know, all the stuff that we never did. And actually, a lot of it was because internationally we needed to, we needed to reflect a slightly different sort of look and feel. So we grew into this suit size that was significantly bigger. And, and then we brought in, we ended up, our, our recruitment was still first class. And actually Fairfax and I were still involved in absolutely every single person that entered the building. No one could get through. And that was the end of Act Two. And the moment Act Two ended was when we were approached by a number of different companies, coincidentally, around about the same time. And all we were looking for was someone to help us get global distribution. distribution. It was a nightmare. You needed muscle. We don't need to go into that. You you and your listeners will know all about it. But this idea that, you know, you had to have distribution muscle. As soon as I left one country, your sales went down. You went to another one, you went up, and it was like whack-a-mole, you know, the reverse. You know, it it was a nightmare. And so... Long story contracted, we had three or four different people having a pop at us. We said, we're really not for sale, but you can buy a stake in the company. Uh, and we'd love we, access to your distribution. But we want your distribution, yes. Yes. you know, yeah. and we want a route to control. You can have a route to control, uh, and, but fundamentally, we just needed you to buy a piece of us because we're not really the sale. We're still very young. We were, we were nine years old. We were nine years old. But of course, as you touched on, the world of gin was exploding. Mm. Uh, every to a large part down to what you had created the sense of a movement I think we were at the front end of it and but even on the on the continent in America there were lots of these craft distilleries popping up making gins and so suddenly it was even harder so we needed to keep in front of this rising tide and and largely we did that when we thought we'd actually only really successfully and efficiently do it with a partner so uh, we found um, amongst them all uh, a company that espoused a very long-term vision, uh, a privately owned company that really understood our sense of independence. And that was really important to our team. We were petrified of telling our team, absolutely petrified, that we were having these conversations in the background. Georgie was the only one we let in. And uh, I mean, there were tears. And uh, we said, look, we kind of have to do this. We have to do this. You know, we're not selling out right there, only buying a stake. And, um, and so we... And in the end, they said, look, I'm sorry, we have to take it all. We have to take it all or nothing. And, um, and so, and they did, they had to, because we, we weren't going to, we, so we needed a lifetime sort of interest in it. And we, you know, we, we don't, as founders, want to leave the brand. We want to stay here uh, all, all the way through. And they said they did. So we did the deal on the 19th of December, 2016, I think it was. And that was the end of Act Two. So we went to Christmas, we told our team, they went out to the press, 
And we were right to be worried about it because they loved everything that Sipsmith was, the sense of independence. This, the independence of This it. independence yes. of it, this autonomy, this spirit. And actually, would it have been okay to have sold a little bit, but actually we sold it all. And actually had probably 70% of the business of the team were going, I can't fucking believe you've done this. And then you have 30% go, this is exciting. Wow. So we got the 30%, we go, can you, you know, we're going to present to you, you know, here's the future. It's immense. It's enormous. It's so exciting. And gradually the positivity came in. And of course, everybody goes through that emotional cycle. What is it? Denial. It's lot, and it's, lot, anger, it's, the grief, it's the grief cycle. Acceptance. It's the grief cycle. Yes. Acceptance uh, um, to, you know, on we go. And before you unpack that stage yeah. three, I'd just like to pick on something because you mentioned that Georgie had this title Minister of Culture. Mm. That seemed to epitomize the quirkiness that you were going for, the individuality, mm. the we don't do it in a normal way mm. where it's gritty, it's but it's us, right? It's authentically us. That's very powerful. Innocent also did it mm. very well. Um, what was the positioning of that individuality, that quirkiness, that unique Sip Smith character? And I love that title. I've not seen that title, Minister of Culture, anywhere else. Um, what was the what was your thinking and the communication to the team on that individuality? Because the the big fear beneath all of the processing of the news of an acquisition like that is we're going to lose that individuality. We, yeah, definitely. I mean, fundamentally, the Ministry of Culture was there because our recruitment process was so bad. You know, uh, we were not, we didn't have any strike. It was very, it was very distracting. Actually, we didn't want to manage people. We wanted to sell a brand. You know, we, we were there trying to espouse, you know, suddenly we became people managers. We weren't trained in that. We were terrible. We were appalling. And, but, but Georgie had this instinct that actually, and uh, that word instinct, that gut feel. She goes, I don't need to be an HR person to improve the organization, to get the structure right. We won't lose this sense of autonomy. We won't lose our culture. If you just bloody leave me alone to get on and do it and have faith and trust that I'm just going to do it the right way. So that was in stage two. Absolutely. Stage that, well, two. well, that was the end of stage two. Okay. All, 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 all the and how did that survive the, the transition into mm, stage three? It, well, it did at the beginning, uh, but it tapered out, you know, definitely. Mm. Uh, and I think this is, this, is, this is the beginning of act three now of, of Sipsmith's journey where... You know, we, they were brilliant, Beam Santori, who acquired us. They were brilliant. They really understood the sensitivity with our team. They really understood the sensitivity with the trade. And actually, there was no issue with the trade. The trade were delighted. They, they, they were thrilled for us, and they were pleased that, that, that the portfolio was also going to be a part of it. So, yes, there was, there was, there was a tapering out. Uh, but Beam Santori let us remain independent. So they could have done what some companies do, which is just subsume you uh, and find the synergies instantaneously to get some, some return on their invested capital. And um, But they said, no, we're going to leave you alone because you're too precious. You're too young. You're too mm. special to be a part of a portfolio. And we were delighted. We felt it was a real win. And Georgie was thrilled. Everyone was thrilled. It was great. But slowly but surely, the fungal creep of corporate world <laughs> got in, right? And don't get me wrong. And, and, and those, there'll be a lot of people, I hope, listening, that will really understand what corporate creep means, where it does. You can't see it. Mycorrhizal movement of, of fungi network, in it, in, it, in it goes. And so too, the emergence of structure, edges, process, guardrails that weren't there before. But don't get me wrong, we were yearning for some of that because the chaos was too much. Yes, it was happy. too much. It's, it's, it's fine if you're young. But I if mean, you we were a big brand, and we were turning over a lot of money. Mm. Uh, but we were very naive leaders, 
uh, and we were holding on too much to one sense of this culture and not getting enough and we didn't have the balance. We were not good enough leaders for it. And so we were welcoming in part of this corporate fungal creep. Uh, there were some people, it was just too much. And That's so that's why they joined the It company. wasn't. And so you got the, you, suddenly there, there, there was in year one, year two, the upward trend of, of attritional mm. fallout. And that was okay. And some people were made for it, some people were not. But here's something that happened, was not only did we lose a lot of people that really loved that independent spirit, that's, that thing that was so special and ultimately was acquired for, one of the reasons was acquired for. Yes. But not only did we lose a lot of people that wanted to be a part of what we had created culturally, but we ended up recruiting people that had come from the big corporate world, not necessarily from that corporate world that acquired us. But when you start bringing people in from big co, into small co, which is now belongs to big co, uh, woof, culture changes at pace. I mean, it, they import the absolutely. The they go, here's what, I, and I think, what can you bring us mm. from your big company that we were inviting in? Mm. And at pace, we were ushering in a change in 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 the culture, uh, and I think it was somewhat deleterious to to who we had been. And I was beginning to see things that I didn't recognize. And was that a necessary change? I think in some part it was, in others it was not. I couldn't, don't ask me for examples, so I couldn't put you, but again, you, 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 you know, that instinctiveness is there. You go, oh shit, look, that shouldn't be, we shouldn't be having conversations about that, you know, or why am I seeing this? We never used to have this. And again, well, you, you invited it in, you know, and, and they were right, and of course, Health and safety, quite rightly, was sort of the first thing that was ushered in, and we needed it. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, you know, it was absolutely critical uh, and much welcome. But there were other things that started featuring that were probably sort of slightly less welcome. And um, But it is interesting, you know, when you are acquired, things change. They will change. They have to change. The people that buy them want to see change. They want to see growth, and with growth comes change. And it is impossible. And you can talk to the founders of many other companies, as we have done, Innocent. They would go... <laughs> You are, you're absolutely swimming upstream if you think uh, um, in a flood, <laughs> if you think that you yes. can hold on to the culture that you had. You, you've just got to let it go. And change is good. Change is okay. Manage it. Talk to your team. Expectation. Uh, get that right. Um, and let them know that what's coming uh, and why it's coming. And we ended up becoming really good at that. So I've become a very different leader now. And, and Fairfax too. Uh, as a result of this. But, you know, things are different, no question. And did you... So I'd like to unpack that just a little bit because what you're talking about is 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 developing a skill in identifying what is good change versus what is bad change. Mm. And that, presumably, it's flying blind when it happens at the start, but you yeah. develop that skill. Talk a little bit about that because you oh, talk about on. being a different... I leader. don't know what the skill is. I mean, and you certainly don't see it when it's happening. You only really look at it retrospectively, uh, and when it's in the rearview mirror, do you see it? I mean, I think there are behaviours that we that I now see from us as founders, lesser Jared, who has just been a constant rock of unchanging brilliance and wonder. Uh, but Fairfax obviously came from Big Co, so so you know, it's, it, you know, there are obviously brilliant examples of. The, re- the reverse happening. But I don't know what the skills are, Charlie. I know you want an answer to that, and I'm not sure I can really define an answer to what you want to hear. Maybe it's in the mix, because before we started recording, you, you, you reflected on the fact the advantage of 
starting a company with two co-founders. Yeah. And what you've just described is three very different personalities. Yes. You, yeah. Fairfax and Jared, yeah. uh, different skills, but different ways of thinking yeah. as well. And Very. maybe that's, an, that's mm. a sort of insulation in part, or at least a compensation mechanism, where it's not one person having to go through a personal yeah. change. It's, it's a, yeah. you've got a, almost a suspension system that's keeping that's you up. That's a brilliant right. way of putting it. That's a really smart way of putting it, because that's exactly how I will now describe it going forward. <laughs> you know, it's this idea, you know, and actually when we jumped off the cliff and we handed it our notice, we did it because of the two of us. I'm not sure I'd have had that fearlessness and bravery without him necessarily. And of course he had the operational brawn. I had something different. I didn't know what it was. I had this sort of, you know, a bit of commercial, a bit of sales, a bit of, you know, whatever it was. And Jared had the know-how. Uh, uh, but in the in the real lows that we experienced, and we did, it wasn't all easy riding. One or other of us would pick the others up when the others were down and we could see it. We understood each other, we knew each other. We could, we, you know, we knew what the other one was gonna say or frankly where, right? We knew, <laughs> you know, it was really weird, but we just knew. Uh, and when the times were up, the others were down and, and you know, we were that suspension, you know, that, that eased us through this, um, yeah, through some really odd times. They're even more strange now uh, and unpredictable than they were in the last 15 years since we've been going. Um, and I want to touch on that yeah. because the many companies at the moment are experiencing, uh, struggling in the transition of an economic cycle. Mm. And of course, economies do go in cycles, but particularly in yours where you're, you're probably susceptible to discretionary spend by the consumer, mm. the cost of living shift that's happened over the last 18, 24 months or so is quite profound, mm. which creates a different organizational tempo and set of priorities mm. to it, right? It, mm. and, and a lot of companies, and I'm sure Sipsmith isn't immune from this, is going from growth mode to much more interest in profitability and cash, yeah. right? Yeah. So how is that affecting the culture particularly? Right. Yeah. I'll tell, tell you one thing we've done, because the gin tie, gin has been a little bit like Icarus, you know, mm. <laughs> you know where he gets terribly excited and he thinks he can fly and he can fly forever and he went right up to the sun and his wings waxed melted, feathers fell off, and so did he. And we are seeing that in global gin category now. So no one had ever seen a meteoric rise in any drink in, in, in a category at all. It was rum, whiskey, beer, vodka, never. No one will ever see the meteoric rise of it either. But of course, what goes up at that pace ordinarily has to come down. And I don't know what uh, uh, some of your teams drinking behaviours were like in lockdown, but you know, a, a lot of gin and tonics were consumed slightly earlier than they would have been. And when we came out of lockdown, uh, you know, everyone was being very experimental and drinking this and cocktails. And you experienced a real spark. Oh, it's crazy. I mean, every week was like Christmas. And that was us. We were going out. We thought this is just unstoppable. And of course you come out and people's behaviours changed instantly. Uh, and I think everybody predicted, as did we, as Roaring Twenties, and I'm coming to the answer to your question, but the Roaring Twenties in hospitality, and how we were going to go, and hospitality was going to be saved by the fact that we're all going to go out and go, you know, drink and eat and be merry for a good while, and you know, but actually that did not happen. And the hospitality sector is still in, in great need. And of course, multiply that effect with cost of living, multiply that with geopolitical, you know, issues, uncertainty, interest rates, and suddenly you've got a market or you've got a customer out there going, actually, I don't want to spend that much. You've got a, a receding tide now going out, you know, in a very fast way. 
So and, 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 and a rising tide, while it lifts all ships, <laughs> it sinks them too. Yeah. And that's what we've seen. And so here's the question. Here's what we've done now. And here's what we've recognized. I think in time, just in time, is the type of behavior, the type of behaviors externally and internally need to go back, you need to go inward. And we're going back to basics. And this is so extraordinary, I find, that actually we're now becoming really successful again at doing the shit that we were doing really well when we were back to basics. The grit, the graft, marketing stuff has to pay. You know, it's not just above the line advertising. You know, the, you know our value for money, you know, the, the, our understanding of the value for money. Is, is, is absolutely critical and it needs to be. You know, uh, uh, when we started, we were £21 for a bottle of Sipsmith and we're now 30 And we've only put one price increase through and that was this year. We've gone from 21 to 30 and that's through um, duty. But our job has been to convince people that it's still value for money. Uh, and of course, that tide has risen, or you know, pricing tide has risen through duty. And so everyone's, everyone's in the same boat. But our marketing activity is about now going back to basics. So externally, we're going back to the brilliant stuff, experiential stuff that we were doing before. And how is your and, that, and, and internally, yes. we're doing the same. So the Ministry of Fun is back. We're going back to the kind of values. We're, we're reminding ourselves of the values that we espoused and we built the business and the brand on. The sense of being a family, looking after each other. You know, people are finding it really hard to make ends meet. Yeah. I mean, they really, they really are. It's, it's not a fallacy. I mean, it's absolutely the fact. And, you know, p- people's lives are sort of inherently different to, to, to what they were. And so the way that we behave with our team, the, what we offer them, the, you know, the, the flexibility, the elasticity and the patience and tolerance needs to shift as well. So you've come full circle. Absolutely. So, you, you, yeah. so your cultural attributes are almost more recognisable what they were in, in I think Act so. 1. I think so. I, 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 I'm absolutely sure. And of course, there's very few people that are still there from Act 1, yes. um, and, and even, you know, there aren't that many from Act 2, a lot of a, a lot of Act 3 now. I mean, these guys are absolutely brilliant, and they're loving the fact that we're reintroducing the tenets of success that we had culturally from, from, from before. And, um, and we've done lots of sort of psychometric stuff to help us understand each other a little bit more, and I think that's been really helpful. Uh, you know, but there's more to do, and I think that sense of instinct, right, that's that gut feel, Common sense. Let's not be robotic about HR. Sam, you talked about coming back to sort of the attributes of Act One mm. in the current climate mm. and how you've sort of gone back to what made Sipsmith special in the first place from a cultural perspective. I'm curious to know whether you've kept many of the signals and the rituals from that first phase. So do you still mm. have a Minister of Culture? Yeah, we still have a Minister of Culture, we still have a Minister of Fun. And, uh, That's a great title. Yeah, it's uh, it's brilliant. It's a much coveted one <laughs> as well. Uh, no, I think those are those are really important. We haven't let go of when the meetings are, and everyone has to stand up for the meeting on Wednesday. Uh, our Christmas parties, we have a way to you know. There's there's, there's a lot of stuff that, that wouldn't surprise anyone. There's there's no kind of like oh wow you do that mm-hmm. it, because I think a lot of people use a bit of instinct in, in, as entrepreneurs just to do the right thing. I mean, I'm sure there's some stuff that we're not doing that we should. Uh, but but yeah, I think broadly the rituals, the language, uh, and um, and the tone of voice internally. I'm not talking about the brand, but our internal brand is 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 very much there. It's very distinct, uh, and um, and we, yeah, that it's the values piece, right? You know, yes, and recognizing we got sort of three great values, which is sort of um, we are a family, no half measures. 
And the other one is, you know, we laugh together, we graft together. And there's that idea of, you know, you do have to work bloody hard. You have to work hard anywhere, right? You know, actually, yeah. But my goodness me, you can hold us to account, we're going to have fun while we do it. You know, we are not um, putting people on the moon. We're not in the medical world. We are not, you know, this is gin. This is a drink. Uh, but so we're going to have fun doing it. We're not going to take ourselves too seriously. Uh, and and that, that, is, that is really key. And I think part of Act 2, part of Act 2 and certainly one of the failures in Act 3 was we just took ourselves too seriously. Uh, and that, again, it's coming back now to we just, just have a laugh. You know? It's really, I see a lot of organisations trying to do what they consider to be the right thing with culture but they view it through a corporate lens and they lose the distinctiveness of what makes an organization unique. Mm. So those three values that you talk about, we're a family, mm. uh, no half measures, and, and, and we, we laugh together, we graph together. No one else will have those, right? Yes. And, mm. and that's a really important point. I, and a lot of organizations, I think, need to be encouraged to be bold enough yeah. to be unique mm. in their cultural distinction. I, the old adage, I think Enron's culture was uh, described as you know, integrity, performance, teamwork. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and of course, that's a, a completely bland, vanilla version yeah. that most organizations yes. have. There's yeah. no distinctiveness yeah. there at all. Yeah. So I think that, yeah. that's really important. Now, you've talked, you've more recently be, uh, certified as a B Corp. Yes. So well, that's an, another stage. And it's mm. not a change of direction, but it's an evolution of the identity Absolutely. and the culture. So how has that affected yeah. how people relate to yeah, the business? It's really interesting. And actually, the idea of B Corp came from within the team. You know, it was a bottom-up idea, not a top-down. As in, they said, what do you think about this? I said, well, what's this? You know, what is a B Corp? And, you know, it didn't take long. I mean, it was very nascent then in the UK. Um, there are probably only four or five hundred brands, and it's now thousand yes two thousand yeah and uh i thought well that could be that could be really interesting and there was a there was a few sort of things that connected with me environmentally at the time uh and uh, i said we're absolutely going to do this let's do this and there was a lot of a uh, lot of pushback from the top from 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 shareholders not because they didn't they didn't believe in sustainability or, or people planet profit but just it was very unfamiliar and I had to do a real sales job. Our team did a sales job of me. You know, uh, it was them that said that we need this. And, you know, we're the generation that's going to, you know, pick up your brand. And, you know, we're the ones that are putting someone on shoulder. We're, you know, there's real connection of, of this, of our employee base, our team, and the outside world in a way more than Act 1 and Act 2. Mm. So there's a very different mindset of this lot, if you will. Uh, than the others, and, and, and I think that's endemic of the world in general. Yeah. How big is the team now? We're 60. So, and they, you've got 60 ambassadors, is 60 what you're saying. Yeah, right? exactly. Those are the people yeah. who yeah, ultimately completely. will be. And so, um, you know, I think one of the brilliant things that happened in Act 3 was B Corp, because what we did, we really bonded as a team. We, you know, we knew we had to get it, and it's a bloody hard thing to mm. get. I mean, mm. I think, you know, the, the B Corp impact assessment online form is littered with people who've given up it is so difficult to get uh, and it's even harder when you're big so when you retrofit b corp into your business it's really hard because you've been used to making decisions that aren't good for your employees that aren't good environmentally that aren't good for your supply chain and your customers that aren't necessarily reflective of a 21st century governance structure you know they're just not there and so when you have to re reverse engineer them 
You, 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 for example, if you look at B Corps now, there's something like 80% of B Corps um, are basically startup businesses. And that is not too pleased to, to, to say, is it, it, you know, anything bad about anyone who started a company going B Corp. It's bloody difficult anyway, but it's even harder if you're retrofitting B Corp in rather yeah. than starting your business and being a purpose-driven business. We found our purpose down the track. And how do you we, define that? We now? were all about profit and growth and growth at any cost. Now it's about the right kind of growth. So Is that what, how you describe absolutely, it? Absolutely. We describe it having the right kind of growth. And that is the language that's used by many different B Corps. And it's, and it's true. So the right kind of growth is having the right kind of people that are looked after in the right kind of way, uh, um, that where it's fair, it's equitable, uh, and that you've got the right government structures in place, the right policies, uh, that you understand your supply chain, that you understand where how you've sourced things and you understand that the, the, you know, scope one, scope two, you know, your impact on site and you understand actually impact down the chain as well, downstream, uh, et cetera. And, and you become aware, you become awakened to the impact that you have. And drinks industry has a massive impact, hugely water consumptive, hugely energy consumptive. We employ a lot of people and it's alcohol. Mm. I mean, let's be, Get it completely clear. It's, it, this, this is, you know, it's alcohol. It's a, we have to work even harder, and we do. And we do have purpose beyond just our economic drivers. You know, we absolutely do. And our team have always come first now. Sorry, they are now first. And, uh, and, uh, and so we, you know, yeah, B Corp has had a tremendous impact. And I tell you, when, you, when you're acquired by a business, uh, like we were with Beef Santori, we became a bit of this Trojan horse, you know. So we, we rebels. Absolutely, we came in, and we said we're going to be a B Corp, and we were this tiny, tiny, tiny little brand. I mean, you know, we are the size of the sea on this piece of paper, as far as being concerned, you know, but as far as the tables concerned, we were absolutely inconsequential. Um, but in we went, and we definitely rippled. We we were a bit of an earthquake and a real pain for the top executive leadership team because we were calling out things. We were saying that, you know, we became these absolute B Corp champion sustainability heroes. Uh, and we still are. And we affected a few other different brands and been some Tory portfolio to become B Corp. Oh, really? And they, Absolutely. they loved it. And now Beam have got this. I'm not saying it's because of us, but, the, you know, definitely I think we've had an impact and an influence. And that is the same as a champion coming into a business and becoming an activist from within. Mm. And I think companies should encourage, right? leaders should encourage members of their team, however big, to challenge them, to be the activists in an organization. The organization doesn't need to be an activist, but if you welcome activists into your company, to your culture, you go, hold me to account. Tell us if we're writing off stuff that should be. Tell us if we're, you know, wasteful. Tell us if we're not doing a good enough job. You know, we'll do our best to, to shift it. But we don't. All, you know, our blinkers are naturally on. And so, if you can lead up, communicate up, tell us, bring the outside in. But 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 you know, corporate activism should be encouraged, without any shadow of a doubt. And it's not just about the generations that are you know in now and will soon be leaders of of this next wave of of industry. It's just because it's the right thing to do. Mm. Because we need to have our feet held to the fire. We need a sense of accountability. And that's how change happens. And it's how change happens faster. That's very interesting. That sense of activism. It's profoundly counter 
the culture of many organisations which ask implicitly or explicitly some degree of conformity. Oh, without question. So that one of the challenges I see all the time, particularly with a with a greater emphasis on inclusion and diversity yeah. at the moment, is how do you balance the tension in an organisation between the need to have a common set of values and a common way of working? I mean, you've described a very distinctive culture in Sipsmith, but yet at the same time having that willingness to speak up the activism. There's there's tension in that. Mm. How how do you enforce the identity of the culture, which is ultimately essential for the survival of the business, and at the same time encourage that activism. What, what's in that for you? Well, I, I, we, have, uh, we also have a team called Kaizen, which is the Japanese word for continuous improvement, which the Japanese culture of Suntory introduced to us. And you know, we recognize that we can't sit still, a policy can't sit still, you know, a team can't sit still, a brand can't sit still, a company can't sit still. You know, your supply chain neither. So a sense of continuous improvement is a really important thing mm. to have, not least, or frankly, foremost for culture. It needs to continuously evolve. It's an organism. It's a living, it's a living thing. And if you, you know, we not only have culture, we not only have fun, we have a single Kaizen, which is ultimately there to look at how we are, in everything that we do, continuously improving. And, and there aren't any metrics, there aren't any, I mean, it's, it's, it's instinctive. You can actually see if things are getting better. But the point with Kaizen is that if it's encouraging a state of constant flux, you allow the permission for the activists to be active. Definitely. Which is, Definitely. if you see, and that's, Absolutely. Kaizen was born out of the Toyota production system, yeah. right, yeah. in the 1980s. Yeah. And the, the, the headline of that always was, anybody can stop the line. Mm. If you see something wrong or you see something that can right. be improved, the exactly. lowliest operator can pull the cord. There was a cord mm. in the Toyota factories that could pull the cord and stop the line to improve things. And there's something counterintuitive often to the, the perceived way of Japanese management, which is very hierarchical, very structural. But actually, Kaizen opens up a, a permission for people to stop the line, say, no, we can improve these things. So that's interesting. You should point yeah. to that. Well, I think this word permission... Is, is so relevant. I think you look at a word map for leadership these days. I, I, I see a lot, the sense of permission, because I think a lot of people feel, even if they go, oh, we're in a very, we had a very sort of democratic team, a sort of autonomous, you know, go for it, you know, do, do how you want to do it. Still, people don't feel that they can do necessarily, not in all contexts. And I think, I think within that, Act 3 at Sipsmith, you know, people are definitely asking for permissions. And I go, you've got permission. I rather like this idea of, and I read this brilliant, brilliant book um, about turn the ship around. It's, it's about this leader of a submarine who says, don't ask permission, just tell me what your intent is. Mm. You know, come up and tell me that actually we're, we're going to start selling um, this brand in this place at this time. That's what, that's what I'm going to do. I said, great, why? Well, because of this reason. And what, and what are the unintended consequences? And what, and what do you need from me? Great, go for it. And that puts the leader oh, in a position of support. Absolutely. Right. You know, I will take full responsibility, but you, are, you, you have expressed your intent. Or, uh, and that's for, in advance of that, you have my permission. You know? And I love that. You know, I, and at Fuller's, I never had that. You know, it was command control. Mm. Uh, absolutely. And I never experienced that. And now, we've, I hope, I hope, I hope, we're trying to foster this sense of intent. You know, just give me your intent. And, and, just, I, think, just and I think the B Corp element... Yes. Is, is consistent with that, or at least is, is directionally aligned with it. I, I want to just um, move on to some personal reflections. Before we do, though, 
Uh, I want to ask a question like we're going to ask all our podcast um, guests is to liken their organization culture to the animal world. So if I was to say what what collective group of animals would most resemble the Sipsmith culture, what would it be? What a brilliant question. I think I'm going to have to say swans. I'm going to say swans because not just because there's a swan on our label and our brand, it's part of the swan's neck of a pot still. It's because um, they're such curious birds. They, they, they're very, very distinctive. And, and on the bottom of our bottle, there is a Latin phrase which we found, which is Cygnus inter anatis, which means a swan among ducks. And I think we have always tried to separate Sipsmith from the everyday, uh, both in what we do and the competitive set within which we sit. And so I would rather be a swan than a duck. And that's what that means, I'd be a swan among ducks. So, and swans are very graceful. They're birds of London. They're protected. Uh, and they have a very rich historical um, you know, connection to British, to British history. They're also paddling like hell underwater. There is real chaos, which you can't see. And the feathers mask it all. But they're beautiful. Uh, and uh, and I, it, for me, it's a swan. That's a great answer. I think we're going to end up with a lot of interesting answers to that yeah, question. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so to finish off, and, and I have thought about spending time on the personal leadership aspect um, of the journey, but you've infused everything you've been talking about with your own personal leadership reflections. There's a, there's a lens on it, though, I wanted, and I have warned you that I was going to ask this. So, so if you would reflect your leadership experience in a, in a song, which one would you choose? In 2002, I'm in a club, a music club in New York, and a friend of mine has taken me to this bar, and he said, he's the music guy, and he goes, I'm going to introduce you to this artist, and uh, you're not going to believe it. She is 16 years old, and she's going to blow your mind. And I said, great. What kind of music? I said, it was country western folk. And I said, great. And it was about 60 people. And it was this girl called Taylor Swift. <laughs> and uh, I sat there, you know, and... She played this song, and I was in quite a sort of emotional state for whatever reason. She, she was played, late. She, yeah, it was late. <laughs> you know, uh, we were drunk, uh, and, uh, and she plays a song called "Fearless," and um, it has nothing to do with leadership necessarily, um, in, because her song is about the well, it's about the bravery that she shows to another guy. But I mean, I was just captivated by by that song. And my kids know it word for word. And for me today, more than ever, we need fearlessness, I think. And, and, and fearless empathy, I think, would be the word that I would tack on to the end of that. So my song is Fearless by Taylor Swift. I'm a Swifty. Well, uh, well apparently she's done quite well. So you she's saw her early on in yeah, her career. Yeah. That, that's, that's a wonderful sentiment. This talk has touched on so many different areas, but not least what it takes to start a business, what it takes to grow it, to sell it, to resurrect it, um, and ultimately navigate personally through that. Most leaders don't stay that course. They essentially jump ship at some point on that, whether they're forced to or they actually do. Um, the only way 
to manage that, ride that tiger, is ultimately to constantly be in a state of change yourself, right? So fearlessness is a wonderful yeah. way. So Sam, thank you. Let's finish it there. What a thank great you, conversation. So much in that. Um, really thank is. you so much for taking the time. No, good luck with the podcast. Thank you, John. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Culture Decoded podcast. I hope you found the conversation interesting and useful. To hear more podcasts in the series and to stay up to date, please do subscribe to Culture Decoded on whatever podcast platform you use. And tell your friends, we're on a mission to get the word out as widely as possible. Thank you. Thank you.